Like, I don't ascribe to the, the fact that entrepreneurs are born. Do not ascribe to that at all. Your experiences and the experiences you place yourself in, you know, if you place yourself in entrepreneurial environments, you will develop entrepreneurial skills, tendencies, and capabilities for sure. Hello and welcome to the Citizens of the Internet podcast, a weekly podcast exploring how people learn, earn, and live online. Welcome back to the Citizens of the Internet podcast. I'm your host, Will Robbins, and I'm really excited to introduce this week's guest, Devin Hughes, co-founder and CEO of Buy Me, a company on a mission to bridge the gap between convenience and online shopping. I was really excited to talk to Devin as I have an intellectual fascination with any company creating a more frictionless world for us in the future. And Devon and BuyMe are certainly doing this. They allow their customers to order from their favorite local stores and have the goods hand-delivered in as little as one hour. Moreover, it's a pretty topical episode as online grocery delivery is one of the few industries thriving during the pandemic rather than being stymied by it, and for obvious reasons. But unlike the Zoom parties and other ephemeral COVID trends, my final intuition is that this one is here to stay that grocery delivery will be a much bigger part of our future than it is of our present. Devon and BuyMe are leading this shift after announcing a $9 million financing round to fund their UK expansion. Indeed, the future is bright for BuyMe, but in this episode, we delve into its more gritty beginnings and into the five or so epic failures endured by Devon before he started the company. Devin is a masterful storyteller with plenty of stories to tell, and so this makes for a really, really great conversation. Just a quick note, this was recorded in DCU on March the 4th in front of a live audience, and so the sound quality is a little more shaky than its usual superb quality. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoy this interview with the great and powerful Devin Hughes. Evening folks, uh, I see a lot of new faces, so welcome to the Startup Society. Devin needs no introduction, uh, but I'll give him a little brief one anyway. If you <laughs> haven't listened to, yeah. I'm the guinea pig for the test, right? <laughs> if you haven't listened to any of Devin's stuff before, you won't notice, but his storytelling abilities far surpass mine, so I'll do as little talking as possible and uh, pass on to Devin. But he's most famous for being CEO of BuyMe, um, who are bridging the gap between convenience and online shopping, I believe you put it. Groceries in as little as one hour, which is, I think, 12 hours better than the industry average. So it's uh, it's really revolutionary stuff. Um, anyway, without further ado, uh, Devin, thanks so much for coming in. I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. I've been also really looking forward to it. <laughs> and, and one thing I've enjoyed about your podcast in the past is that you tend to dwell on your failures for a lot of the, you know, a good proportion of the episode, which I think is quite refreshing. And um, so I was wondering if you might add a little colour on some of those, maybe starting with your uh, your college days. Yeah, sure. Yeah, dwelling on my failures sounds sounds like something I probably do actually do a lot. Um, but in fairness, like, I mean, that's where you're going to get most of the learnings from. I start every pitch with every investor saying, buy me is my fifth business. I've had four spectacular failures that have got me here. Spectacular to me and meaningless to everyone else. Um, and that's I think that's quite important because it is it's it's a big part of the of the process. And um, very few people hit it big on the first go. There's you know, everyone looks at good social network and thinks, fuck, I'm gonna you know, start a business and I'll be just balling, you know, by the time age of twenty two or something. It's not the case. Uh, they're outliers. Um, and the average I think is seven. It takes seven attempts, seven shots at the cherry to, to actually pull it off and I'm on number five which doesn't bode well for buy me. <laughs> so yeah, so I 
I was always quite entrepreneurial. I think, you know, I, I, my mom was quite entrepreneurial. My dad is, is not entrepreneurial, but he's a great businessman. So I grew up, you know, with a mom who pushed me to do stuff and a dad, you know, on business calls, on, on conference calls in the car, and I just listened to him do business. So I think I got those blends of those two things. When I left secondary school, I didn't have a fucking clue what I wanted to do, being very honest. I decided to go and do finance because I figured like by the time I actually figured out what I wanted to do, finance would be a decent thing to have under my belt because it underpins uh, you know, every business. I would also say things like engineering as well. There's a good, a good, a good transition background because you know, process and understanding of process and systems is, is uh, also really, really tangible. So through college, didn't really do much until my final year. My final year is where I suppose I really started to, I would say for the first time, socialize with other like-minded individuals. Um, I met a guy called Gareth Flower, um, which some of you may know. He was the co-founder of Crust Bakery and more recently of Park P&P. Me and Gareth you know, met when we were about 18, 19 maybe, and we hit it off very quickly. We both kind of got each other, both full of energy and lots of ambition, blind probably and, and in most cases. And our first entrepreneurial dalliance was basically club promoting. So we, we, Garrett was living in an apartment, Garrett's from Longford, and he, so he was living in an apartment in Temple Bar. And uh, his apartment was like a top floor apartment overlooking the Temple Bar pub. Like it was, you could not find a better student dig. Like it was unreal. And we would have great parties and stuff there. And so we ended up obviously promoting the place and we charged people 10 quid into the apartment. Um, we'd go to Aldi or Little and we'd buy a hell of a lot of cheap beer and food and we'd barbecue on the balcony. It was all you can eat, all you can drink, cheap food and beer, so you pay your 10 euros in. And one of our friends was, a, was a, the manager at 21's nightclub, you guys won't remember that, but it's on Delir Street. And we would get all of our guests in for free. So if they were coming to us, they would get it 21's for free and they get a free shot on entry. And we did that for about a year. And that was our first time actually kind of getting out and doing something, which was, yeah, totally illegal. Uh, now that I think about it. <laughs> and we were doing, like, we called it E7 to 11. Yeah. Which was because you had to be out by 11, or else the neighbours would freak the fuck out. Um, so it was E7, the apartment, had to be finished by 11, E7 to 11. So we'd go in and we'd be out by 11 and, and get the job done then afterwards. And yeah, that was the first time I experienced it, really. And from then, it was just a one crack at the whip afterwards. So I'd already count E7 and that five. That was okay. kind of a bit of a tease. That's the, the fifth, the spectacular failure. That would, be, that would be technically the fifth, which would make by the sixth, right? We're getting yeah. there, right? <laughs> I'm sure I can find another yeah. failed one in the mix there. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have to comb through your childhood. Uh, and was there anything in particular you learned from that kind of scratching your own itch or you know solving your own problems? I was, I would say, too ambitious and too eager, and I was just running at every fucking idea that came my way. And mm. um, you know, after after that, like I remember, like just the end of college in my finals, I had gotten myself into a stage where I was importing electric golf trolleys from China, and I saw a gap in the market for a reasonably priced electric golf trolley. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> and so I, I ended up, myself and Garrett imported 182 electric golf trolleys. Uh, we raised 20,000 euros from friends and family, uh, and we shipped this fucking container into Ireland and stored it down in Longford in his dad's house. <laughs> and uh, started driving around the country selling it into, into pro shops. And that was my first proper, like, okay, putting some money behind this, starting a business, registered a company, you know, did all this bullshit that everyone does at the start. I would say don't even, unless someone's willing to send you some money, don't bother registering anything. Because the minute you register, you immediately start incurring cost. 
and that was the first thing. Incorpor- people incorporate way too early, um, because you just think that's the that's the right thing to do. And that was probably the first time because uh, that was my first time dealing with one import export fat raising capital from people, how to structure that conversation, and then ultimately learning the hard lesson of selling stock on credit to small and medium-sized businesses that ultimately you know, will not pay you. Um, and we ended up I think, losing about four and a half, five grand overall on that whole project um, because we started a fucking golf business in the middle of the recession. <laughs> like, I mean, like when you look back, you're like, Christ, you got into the worst, the worst sport. Golf clubs are closing nationwide. And we decided to start that business at that time. So we just didn't understand that kind of that external market timing and how important that is when you're really, you know, when you're getting something started. When you think back to that, do you think that was um, a worthwhile mistake that you kind of had to make yourself? Or are there a lot of known unknowns that you could kind of have found out and wouldn't have to actually make those mistakes? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, So I can look back and say, yeah, there's plenty of things that I could have got. But to be honest, the world was quite different. Yeah. I mean, we sure as shit, and I was just saying, you know, earlier on, we didn't, we didn't have a, a very open kind of community of people who were just a little bit further in the road than yeah. us. Social media wasn't really that big. We had Facebook. That was pretty much it. You know, there was no influencing. There was no, you know, video content. Like, that wasn't a big yeah. thing. So I'd say we had less visibility into other people trying to do cool shit. Yeah. And so, and we were very traditional, you know? It was, it was still a kind of, the world of entrepreneurship was still quite, you know, traditional in a sense. And I think looking back, I would say that 20 grand that we raised and the few quid that we lost, like our investors made 10%, by the way. Yeah. And this is an important lesson. Like, me and Gareth lost five grand. Our investors got 10% in their investment. That is incredibly important. We basically took the hit. So we could have broke even. Everyone could have broken even. But we basically took the hit so that our investors got what we said they would get. And I think that's that's really, really important. You know, I would much rather take a five grand hit and my investors make some profit than everyone breaks even, they make nothing on their on their even if they got the money back. Yeah. So that, that was an important part of the process because you learn this respect for money and particularly when you're asking strangers to give you their cash. You know, that comes with a serious amount of responsibility um, and being able to appreciate that and understand it for what it is. Some people don't and they go completely the opposite way. Uh, they don't mind if people get burnt. I was never like that, myself and Garb were never like that. We always wanted to make sure that anyone who backed us uh, walked away better because of it. So that's, I think they're important lessons that I don't think I could have learned had I not gone through the process, right? You, I mean, so that's what you just can't read in a book. You know, you have to actually go through the process and experience that, 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 mm. that, that, yeah, that, that interaction and that responsibility. Four grand um, well spent. Five grand well spent. It was the cheapest <laughs> masters in entrepreneurship ever, yeah. right? Like, I mean, they didn't even exist. There was no masters in entrepreneurship then either. I, I sound so old when I'm talking like this. It's like, yeah, none of this stuff existed. But yeah, like, I mean, at that stage, that was that was what we spent, and we spent a year and a half learning everything there was about direct sales, marketing, yeah. branding, um, fucking selling, and, and, and all the rest that goes with it. And so that was kind of our, probably the first real yeah. kind of goal of it. Taking those lessons and moving on, I believe the next uh, flurry was into the, the energy business or wind farms. Yes, yeah, and this kind of, there was a lot of crossover. Um, so we, and this is actually really interesting. So the energy part was myself and Garrett. Garrett had, Garrett's family had 100 acres of land in Longford. And we were just keen to do something. We decided, you know what, let's build a wind farm. No, no, a lie. A friend of mine's dad invested in a solar farm in Spain. And we said, let's build a solar farm. It was like, we had no experience in energy. We didn't have any education in energy. We just had land and some very, very, very big ideas um, and notions. And yeah, we started work on this project. We hired an intern. We got an intern from, I think it might have been DCU. <laughs> 
he was the same age as us. It was so funny. This guy, Keith, lovely guy. He had just done environmental uh, science, I think, and his dad owned a wind farm in Wexford. And we actually hired him as an intern, unpaid, of course. And he came and we interviewed him in like the Morrison Hotel. We were in our suits, me and Garrett and everything. And uh, he, built, he did an environmental impact study for us for this project. And then he ended up getting a job at a real energy company after that. And I subsequently ended up working with him in that energy company later on in life. Pure coincidence. But yeah, like these are the processes that we went through. And what happened was we actually, Garrett's uncle had worked with this guy over in the States, this renewable energy dude called Diego Belmonte. Great name. Great name. Like, I mean, you're going to be a baller if you're called Diego Belmonte. Like, there's, there's no, you're not going to be the homeless guy in the corner called Diego Belmonte, right? So he was the ex-CEO for PhotoWadio, Photo which is like the largest solar manufacturer in North America. And uh, he was, like, I think just more so bored, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And, you know, Gareth flew over uh, to stay with his uncle for a couple of weeks during the summer and pitched him this idea on our wind farm, uh, our solar farm at this stage. And uh, Diego said, well, hey, you know, I'm interested in expanding to Europe. Maybe, you know, we could do something together. And within probably about three months, we had like basically taken our little registered business and merged it into his company. And so we became the European office for his company with his brand. He was the CEO and we were just like, you know, associates or, you know, partners, whatever. Um, and that was my first proper mentor. Like Diego was our first mentor. You know, my entire career since then has been just, I would say, just every single major step has involved a mentor or two or three um, in every single jump or every single uh, move to the next stage. And Diego was the first one. We ended up, you know, going on an absolute adventure with him. We raised 250,000 euros for pre-IPO investment. Now, me and Gary raised 50 of that. Diego was like, I'm putting in 70 and a couple of buddies are going to put in a few quid and all the rest. And, and we went back to our investors that made our 10% on their 20 grand. And we were like, got this new idea, you know, this new thing. And we raised 50 grand off the back of that for, for that deal. And, um, and yeah, like, I mean, you just go through all these different experiences. And that was, that was the energy business, really, more or less. Uh, it, was just, it was just meeting amazing people. We didn't, we didn't make a fucking penny. We didn't make, we probably made, in fact, we did. We sold one set of LED lights to one pharmacy uh, in, beside Break for the Border. No, that's the Grafton Hotel now. And that's it. That, like, we never turned over a cent in that. Like, I mean, the US business was doing some, some business, but <laughs> me and Garrett were just along for the ride. <laughs> but learning a lot. I yeah. mean, we found ourselves in amazing situations meeting, you know, people who had built $100 million a year businesses, the board of some of the largest real estate companies in America. And we were just there soaking up knowledge and information uh, during the whole process. And I believe there was a lunch when you were over in America that kind of shaped maybe your you know, your ambition for the next few years. Oh my God, yes, there was. You have done your homework. Wow. Um, yeah, so actually that was with Diego. And yeah. so this is one of those experiences, right? So myself and Garrett were, were over, we were doing this pre-IPO investment, so we flew it over to New Mexico, of all places, Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's the weirdest place ever. And we met with this guy called Farzad Diabachi. Uh, and he was the founder of Noravachi, which was the company we were investing in. But he was, he had basically made 160, 170 million in the dot-com boom and just like crushed it, Forbes, you know, just everything. You could Google this guy and be like, wow. And so we're sitting there at lunch. I remember me and Gard are basically interns, all right? That's like, I mean, we're partners and we're technically shareholders, but we're interns. Like me, me and him were working full-time in the Hard Rock Cafe. Like nine to five, no, sorry, it was nine to five, our business, five to midnight, burgers and chips. All right, and that's how we actually made money. 
and, and so we found ourselves at, at, at this luncheon. I just remember Gareth sitting opposite me, Diego, on my right, and Farz on my left. And Farz had to tell Diego how, you know, a $100 million a year business doesn't excite him anymore. You know, his last company took public, it was worth $7 billion, you know, at its height. Uh, and that this business had to be a billion dollar company and that was the ambition, there was nothing else. And me and Gareth, I just remember me and Gareth just sitting there. I remember our tiny little 21 year old minds being like, you know, just like sponges. I actually believe that those, these types of conversations that Diego exposed us to were quite formative because it set our expectations in terms of what we could achieve in our career. And I think that's one thing that Ireland has suffered from in the past is this ability to think big, to have a big grand ambition and um, you know, we have Catholic shame galore, um, and we, we tend to feel a bit of shame if you think too big and talk too big. And, and I think our experience with Diego and, and the US and, and the likes of Farzad, people like that, we, we probably were just caught at the right time. Yeah. And I think that shaped us quite, the fact that just myself and Gareth have kind of gone off and done very similar yeah. stuff, I can't help but think it was uh, impactful. For sure. This doesn't strike me as a, as a traditional career path. You know, if, if, you were, if I was asking someone, you know, how do I get to, where de- get to you know, be a successful entrepreneur by age 30, I wouldn't um, you know, consider raising money for golf carts and then uh, wind farms. So were you just kind of being conscious about it or were you just pursuing your kind of curiosity and ambition? No, like I said, like a blind ambition and just zero cop on. Yeah. Like, the, the, I, I, like I'm, I'm a very excitable person by nature, and I think every every entrepreneur is going to be an excitable person. You can get, you know, you have to be able to get excited about the most mundane shit, because most of the time starting a business it's really tough and boring a lot of the time, and you need to be excited about that. So there's that energy that you have to bring in, and like I mean, I, I at that stage, I mean anything shiny. Anything that I, you know, that I thought could turn into a business, I would get excited about. I was just so enthusiastic uh, to a fault, and I had no methodology, I had no best practice, no experience. So, you you put those things together, you're not going to get a terribly successful outcome unless you have some really experienced people and mentors around you. And at that time, we didn't. We had Diego, which was one person based in the U.S. We were here primarily most of the time, so we didn't have that constant uh, re-engagement. But yeah, I mean, it's it was. It's just blind running at the wall uh, most of the time. And that's, I think that's why most of those businesses just didn't work out. It's just we didn't have the experience to understand what exactly it took to execute on a successful business strategy um, and all of the variables that are at play. Moving on from there, was it, did Garrett go on to cross then? And yeah, so me and Garrett, like, I mean, we decided to part ways. Yeah. Like we had spent probably the guts of three years together um, living in each other's ear holes. Like, I mean, he slept on my couch in my parents' house for a while, like after college, like we were constant. And then I slept on his couch when he moved into a new apartment in, in Temple Bar. Like we just were glued to each other. And I think we got to a stage and it, it, you know, starting a business together is really, it's a really close relationship that you're gonna have. And it can be very stra- stressful, you know, you're not, and especially when things are not going right. And so I think it got to a stage where we both realized that we weren't really progressing anymore. Like we'd learned as much as we could together, really. And that we kind of just have to go our separate ways. And so Garrett went and started Crust Bakery. That was his next business, which turned out to be an absolute smasher. Uh, and he built an incredible brand, an incredible, just yeah, just a really great business. And I, I took a different approach. So, you know, Garrett, was, Garrett is a militant entrepreneur. You know, he'll tell you, he'll tell you himself, like he want, like he'll never want to work. He never, never wants to work for anyone else. He'll always work for himself. I'm, I'm not quite like that. Yeah. And after uh, a couple of bites of the cherry, I decided that, you know, there was, I was just missing something. Right? And I said, I'm gonna get a real fucking job. I'm gonna go and see what a real business looks like on the inside, and um, because I'm just not getting it. There's something I'm missing. Um, and I think that was the, 
best decision I'd ever made was actually saying to myself, you know what, I'm going to take a bit of a break here. Because starting a business, and no matter what age you do it at, and no matter how many times you do it, it is one of the most strain, stressful and uh, per personal challenges that you'll go through. And at that stage, I think this was four businesses in, five if you can be seven to eleven, over the course of four years. So you can imagine the cadence of trying to, and we were registering these companies. Like, I mean, it was, it was a, these were real businesses like that we were working on. It got, I just had to take a break to, you know, uh, recover mentally and emotionally and spiritually, financially. So yeah, so I decided to go to get a real job. And that job was at um, Salesforce, and why did you... It wasn't, actually. Oh, it wasn't? No. I went, so my only background was energy markets at this stage. Yeah. Um, and so I went to work for an energy company uh, called Veiu, which was, uh, and it was perfect, because it was a 100, 130 million a year business, and I had 30 employees, and the founder was still there. Well, one of the founders is still there. So it was for me, it was perfect because I got into a business. There wasn't that many people. I could get FaceTime with the founder, um, and I could see all the different departments. I could sit with the financial control, the commercial director, the COO, and I spent. I actively went in there and started spending time trying to meet all these people and understand how they approach their department. You know, and I act deliberately went in to learn what a, what a, what a hundred and thirty million thirty person business looks like. Yeah. And so that was. I spent uh, two and a half years there, working primarily on energy and gas trading for large pharmaceuticals, and that was a really interesting time because I learned a lot about macro market analysis. And, and by me would never have happened had I not gone to pay you. Fact, because what what you what I learned there was how to understand trends in markets. You know, and thinking about it, 2014, which is my last year in energy, um, one of the big things was Russia went, Ukraine, Crimea, yeah, I'll have that. And they just annexed Crimea, like, just took it over. And that was a big problem because we have one of Europe's largest gas pipes, goes right through that area. Um, and they started to squeeze the tap on, on European gas. And that was driving the price for all of our clients up. So these were the types of things that I was looking at. I was like, what if, you know, what geopolitical conditions, weather conditions can influence the market, and trying to think about the external factors um, that are at play. Go back to like an eSport golf, electric golf trolleys. Had I had that cop on, I would have thought maybe starting a golf business in a recession isn't the best idea. Yeah. So connecting those dots yeah. was, was quite important. You know? uh, do you suggest maybe someone who's young, ambitious in college, should they try and get a job in a, in a fast-growing company like Veiu or sh and learn the trade, or should they you know, follow their curiosities first, or just... I mean, you should, you should, you should start, like, starting a business is, is it's pure muscle memory. Like, I don't ascribe to the, the fact that entrepreneurs are born. Do not ascribe to that at all. Your experiences and the experiences you place yourself in, you know, if you place yourself in entrepreneurial environments, you will develop entrepreneurial skills, tendencies, and capabilities, for sure, for sure. It is neuroplasticity at its best. You're not born with this stuff. Like, it's just not the case. You'll definitely have a little bit of a better chance if your parents are giving you the right steer and all the rest, but all of the, you just put yourself in the right environments, like this is a great, a great example. Surrounding yourself with people who have similar interests is, gonna, is going to be a step in the right direction. And um, listen to podcasts. And listen to podcasts, for sure. And that, look, that's a big part of why you know, I would like to think that I try and share as much, because I'm only a few steps down the road. You know, I'm not, not, not made it. Don't consider myself successful. I, that word makes me cringe a little bit. You know, I'm a entrepreneur. I think I'll always be a entrepreneur, and I, you know, I think that word gets a lot of bad rap. But actually, every person I've ever met was a entrepreneur. 
so it is what it is, you know? But I think when it comes to what you do now, absolutely follow your curiosity. Try and start businesses, however big and however small, because that flexing that muscle makes it easier every single time. Like, my business number, like, I spun buy me up like that. Yeah. Because I've done it four times. Like, so I knew the process to go through. I knew when the right time to incorporate was. All of those things that I didn't know, the, like every time you do it, you get a little bit more insight into what that process should look like. And oh, fuck, I shouldn't have done that, or that didn't really make sense. Why did I do that so quick? Like business cards. I don't carry business cards. The first thing I did for business at one to four was buy business cards, because that felt like the right thing to do. I need to have a business card so people know I'm fucking serious. I don't. I don't. Today I don't. I've, I've been buying them four years. I got my LinkedIn notification. Four years I've been working on buying. I don't have business cards. I actually refuse to buy business cards because it's just it's these little things that I thought were important in the early days that actually mean call in, in, in the reality. And uh, so when did this did the did the idea for Blimey come before you decided to move into the tech sector? No, so it kind of all happened at the same time. So 2014, I was like, okay, two and a half years taking my break from startups, I'm starting to get the itch again. Um, ready to do this you know, one more time, let's do it. And I decided that I was gonna start a business. So I started taking my annual days off and I called them, I called them innovation days. I remember in the office laughed at me. And um, so I would take a day off, I would sit at home and I would just read industry reports. Any type of industry, any type of vertical, I would just read the reports. And I would try and understand like where the pain points in the markets were. Like uh, Bill Gates? He's like reading he's reading weeks, yeah, they're so cool. Not, not nearly as cool as that. Uh, like he's reading like 15 million books at the same time. No, I was reading one report for three days. <laughs> so yeah, no, I would, I would do that. And I was trying to understand like different areas, different industries, where could the opportunity. Now I knew I wanted to do a tech company. So energy was a heavy, very heavily regulated industry and you needed massive capex, massive investment to do anything. You know, like a wind farm, our wind farm, our first project was gonna cost 10 million euros to build. I mean, the fact that we even thought that we could do that is, is, when I look back, absolutely hilarious. But so I realized getting out of there, I could build something, scale something cheap and fast out of a, an apartment. And that was, that was the, okay, I'm going to tech. And then, more macro, I was thinking, well, the trend for this city is uh, certainly not into energy, and tech is going to be the best place to earn some serious dough in the next 15 to 20 years. So even if my tech business goes, I'll still be in tech. Not a bad contingency plan, yeah. right? And that's quite important, having a contingency in anything that you do, whether it be startup or, or your professional career. What's the ultimate downside? Extrapolate the downside as quickly as possible. Understand what the downside is and then make your decision based on, okay, well, I can, even if things go tits up, I'm still in a decent, decent position. And so, yeah, so I, I, I stumbled upon the grocery market. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it wasn't even from one of my reports. I was having a pint with someone and uh, they pointed out to me that the grocery e-commerce market in UK Ireland was nine billion pounds. And I thought, Christ, that's fucking huge. Like, there's not many markets in two countries, and Ireland and the UK being relatively small countries, that have a nine billion pound spend, right? Most markets are a billion or a couple of billion at best. And I, I was like, that's interesting because the residential electricity market in the UK is 13 billion. And that's a big fucking market. So I thought it was so interesting that you had this big market. What I found even more interesting was that when I looked at it, and then when I started pulling the reports for that market, I saw that the long-term demand curve, no, sorry, actually, what came to first was that the market was losing 300 million pounds a year. So that nine billion pounds was the total customer spend, but the losses of the market combined were 300 million. So it was an unprofitable market. 
and it was heavily subsidized by the retailers. I thought, that's interesting. I mean, not a big deal. Subsidized markets are normal. Gas is a subsidized market. We subsidize it because you know, it's how society functions. So it's not unreasonable to have a subsidized section of the market. But innovation day, innovation day, innovation day, five reports in, the long-term demand curve for online grocery is 20 billion in 10 years. So it's going to go from 9 billion to 20 billion in 10 years. Today, it's losing 300 million pounds. You just do some basic math. You're going, OK, well, that's six to 800, 600 to 800 million of losses within 10 years. And any free market economist, thank you, finance degree, tells you that if you have a rapidly expanding market with heavily compounding losses, what happens in a free market? Any economists in this room? You get a correction. The market corrects. Because that's, that's the way our world works. That's what free market economics is. The market will recognize inefficiencies and then correct. We've seen it in 2008. Right? Market correct. And so I thought, this market is fairly ripe for disruption. And we're probably going to see a few better mousetraps emerge. And this could be a really cool industry to be in for a decade or two. Um, so that long-term approach important to you that you were, you know, setting it out for a decade or two? I think I probably learned the lesson from the golf thing. I was like, if I'm going to go into this fucking space, I'm going to be sure that the timing of the market is right. <laughs> I think that was a big yeah. part of it. You know, I, I, I think that lesson really stuck with me. Um, and I know it sounds very silly when the, earlier on I pointed out, but actually, when I look back at the decision that led me into this, this, this venture, I think understanding the market was a big, what I spent most of my time doing. I spent the whole back end of 2014, six months, learning what I could about the market and saying, yeah, I think, this, I think I'm right. I think this is, there's something here. And then, and then very quickly, I was like, OK, I'm going to do this. But, and it's a big but, I have fuck all background in technology. And this is a technology company. Before? That's a problem. Yeah, that, exactly. That's the, I didn't stop me before. But remember, I fucked it up before. So I was acutely aware that I wasn't uh, skilled and I didn't have the reputation to justify a tech company. And I knew that this was going to be a venture play. This wasn't going to be a traditional business that you start and scale. You, know, you were going to need capital to, to really get this up and running on its feet. And so figuring that no investor would take me seriously as a tech CEO and co-founder, I decided that I had some time. The market wasn't going to correct overnight. And I decided to get a job with the, I knew it was going to be a platform company. Um, and I decided I was going to get a job with the best platform company I could find. Uh, I interviewed for two platform companies, HubSpot, uh, made it to the final round. They said no. Um, but all of the experience I had in interviewing for HubSpot worked out really well, because when I interviewed with Salesforce, I fucking walked the interview because I'd gone through the HubSpot process first. So I made all my mistakes with HubSpot and then got into what, Salesforce. Um, what position were you in? I was uh, an enterprise account representative, enterprise strategy representative, something along those lines. I can't remember the exact title. They changed all the time. And I, had a team, I was on a team of about 15 people. And our job was essentially to connect and engage with the C-suite of, well, my vertical was uh, FMCG, pure coincidence. So I got to engage with Unilever and Coca-Cola. That was a fluke. And then I got automotive manufacturing, so Jaguar Land Rover, BMW, Mercedes. And so our job was to engage our C-level customers and, and contacts in these big companies and learn about their problems. What's keeping you up at night? What's the problem with your department, your data, your operations, your inefficiencies? And just have great conversations and find opportunities within those businesses and then bring in the different resources from Salesforce to try and, uh, and, to try and satisfy those. I absolutely loved 
my time in Salesforce because I literally just got all I did was learn about platform economics, design, architecture, and just listen to the pains and woes of the C-suite of, of these industries. There was so much learning, yeah. so much knowledge, um, and I got paid really well to do it. It was like the best university. I could have, like it, was, it was like getting paid to go to the coolest university ever. And so during that year, I spent the first six months of my job learning everything there was to know about Salesforce and how to crush it in my role, and then the rest of the six months working on something else. And during that time, I kind of you know, pulled together a, a small founding team, and we, we got to work. So we're getting to find me now. Um, I, Devin, I hope you don't mind, but I have a little excerpt here from the Irish Times. I thought it was, uh, it's very interesting as to how your experience from energy led into your, your founding of me. It says, he says he stumbled upon the grocery e-commerce market. It's worth $9 billion only in Britain and Ireland alone, he points out. But the retailers involved make $300 million losses, as you said. Um, because they're subsidizing, su subsidizing the delivery infrastructure. The distribution model they were using could never work. We have heat and power in our homes because the different services share the same infrastructure. There are nine grocery delivery distribution networks across Britain and Ireland, all doing the same thing along the very costly duplication of infrastructure. The principles used for hundreds of years for the distribution of commodities were being ignored. Um, now, I've just finished a course uh, called Learning How to Learn Online, and there's a concept, Einstellung, uh, which is German for mindset. Basically, if someone's entrenched in an industry for too long or a subject, their mental models of how it works can block them from seeing how it could work. How do you think your background in energy and um, approaching this problem kind of opened a lot of doors for you that you know other people wouldn't have had coming into the market? Dude, for sure, I think it's probably been the most advantageous aspect. Um, it doesn't sound like it at the start, right? Because I, I mentioned to people that my background is not tech or food, it's energy. Immediately people go, I don't get it, I don't get the connection. And so that, that, that's a bit of a challenge for sure, hence why I did the Salesforce thing first. Because I was like, right, I'll box tick, technology background, okay, grand. Worked at FMCG, while well, it says, oh cool, understands food. And then I slipped the energy thing in afterwards. And that's, yeah. that's kind of, that's, that's important because the complexity of explaining why energy makes sense in grocery, it's a bit of a leap. It takes a bit of time and it, it's not something you can get across in a 30 second elevator pitch. All right, and that's that's an important that context to it, and even even listening to that, I'm like, Christ, I'm ranting, but it's important. And I think when I look at like the way we've approached, and it's this is again, this is like maybe just things that drew me to the market more so yeah. than anything else, because my latter half of my tenure in energy was I was working on something called demand side management, which was where we had these large pharmaceutical plants that pulled massive amounts of energy off the grid, right? So you have a supply and a demand network, which is your electricity network, right? And you're constantly trying to balance supply and demand at all times. If demand is too low, you're going to have a lot of supply that you're paying for, and the prices go up, or sorry, go down uh, too low. And then if you have too much demand and not enough supply, the prices start to become inefficient and start getting really expensive. And so what we were doing was, as the price of electricity would get too high, demand is too high, we would turn our big energy users onto what's called diesel gen, diesel generators. Right? Take them off the grid. So you would take Pfizer off the grid remotely. Okay? They would start just making their medicines with diesel generators at the back. It's much more fancier, but that's more or less the gist of it. And so I was I was entrenched in this demand side management 
kind of thought exercise. And I'm not an engineer by background, so I spent a lot of time reading, a lot of complex paperwork, trying to get my head around this because I thought there might be an opportunity for our business. And then when I came across this, I looked at, okay, you have a 300 million pound market being lost. Why? Well, I mean, you look at, again, came back to the market size. I was like, it's nine billion pound markets, nearly the same size as electricity. How are they distributing it? And I found nine distribution networks, Tesco.com, Sainsbury's, Acados, all doing the same shit, but vertically integrated. So vertically integrated means I build a warehouse, I buy a van, I hire a person to drive that, and then I drive the groceries to your house from that warehouse. That's vertically integrated, very centralized distribution. Grocery, sorry, energy and gas is decentralized. We have decentralized networks. We have multiple assets all generating, and we have all a bunch of grids that, that handle distribution. So again, you can see why I avoid this complexity, right? It's, uh, it's, it gets a little bit de you know, thick. Um, so the reason was that they're losing money, is that their distribution model was not, was not built efficiently. And so you had these, the, the wrong model, the wrong approach was been taken. And what you needed was, you needed the likes of an air grid, which is the electricity grid operator, that just manages the data and the cash flow of the market. And it sits on top of the assets of the market. And so I didn't want to build distribution centers. I didn't want to build vans. Uh, I didn't want to buy vans. I just wanted to leverage all of the existing assets and infrastructure in the market and optimize them to work better. There's already a bunch of cars out there. There's a lot of people. And there's a lot of grocery stores. We don't need to build shit, right? There's a all that stuff is already there. All we have to do is sweat the assets harder. Um, and we've networked. We built the, net the platform, essentially, was built to network those assets uh, and plug in into each of those stakeholders and then optimize the market, match that supply and demand, and balance the network. So it was the exact, what I saw was the exact same challenge that we've been doing for with electricity for years. I wrote an article in 2014 about this exact thing, like why J.P. Morgan and Thomas Edison was the reason why grocery e-commerce was going to work. And it's, it's funny because at that stage, I was only really starting to get my fucking head around it. Yeah. And when I look back now, I'm like, I'm still saying the same shit. <laughs> so your, your non-tech background kind of almost turned out 100%, 100%. And this is another thing. A lot of people think you need to have like a computer engineering degree to start a tech company. False. False. You do not. You just need to have a business partner who has a computer engineering degree. <laughs> like, and, and here's the thing. Like, a tech company is not someone with a computer. A tech company is a fucking marketing department. It's a software development team. It's a quality assurance team. It's a product strategy team. It's an operations team. Like, you need all of these skill sets to make it work. And so finding good people, and you're not going to start a tech company by yourself. The chance of you succeeding in starting a tech company by yourself is almost less than zero. Um, you're always going to do it with co-founders. So if you don't have a tech background, that's just fine. Find someone with a tech background who you can work with and start building cool shit. Amen. And, uh, <laughs> Preach. <laughs> so the idea, you had the idea. How did you go about um, validating it? This is... This is the great question, right? So again, four failures in, I was not making the same mistake fifth time. So I took a very, very methodical approach as to how I was going to go about this because I, did not want, I didn't want to be pissing in the wind. All right? and I didn't want to quit my well-paid corporate job that I've now gotten in Salesforce. Uh, so that sweet, sweet tech money, I did not want to quit unless this was a real goer. And that's, like, that's the other side of it, like running blindly into opportunities. I am past that. I've evolved. And that's not what I'm going to do again. So I really have to fight my natural urge to just go, you know, like right in. And so what we did is, like, OK, I'm going to validate this. How do I validate it? 
first started talking about my friends and family, as you do, soundboarding, you know, all the rest, get yourself even comfortable with the idea and, and kind of practicing your, your delivery. I got introduced to a guy called Carla Hearn, mentor number two. Um, and Carla Hearn was the managing director at the time of Wira, or former managing director of Wira, which was Telefonica's startup accelerator. I can't remember who introduced me. I wish I remember. I want to buy them a bottle of wine or something. Um, Carl uh, was starting his own business at the time. It was called Red Planet Ventures, which he sold about two years later to Deloitte. Um, it was like a startup corporate dating business. And so I met, met him in Dogpatch Labs, and he kicked my fucking teeth in for about two and a half hours on how shit the concept was. Um, and just pointing out all of the obvious reasons why this won't work. And I came out all flushed and red-faced and pissed off. But the biggest frustration for me was not I wasn't angry at Carl. I was angry that I didn't have enough information to compete. I wasn't able to debate him. You know, and what I learned very quickly was that is that your market intelligence is your is your weapon in this game. You were going to meet a lot, a lot of the people with a lot of fucking opinions, right? And they all come. Their opinions come from their own biases, their experiences, their childhood, their parents, their schooling. Like all of this shit will shape their opinions. And in most cases, we don't know jack shit. We make most of our decisions because we have a chimp with a computer status, you know, strapped to its head. And that's where we make most of our instincts from, most humans, and, and me included. And so I, went, I said, okay, let me get this fucking data and we'll see, we'll see if Carl Hearn is right. Um, and I remember going then, I said, okay, I'm gonna survey. I'm gonna, and I, I rang SurveyMonkey. Um, I said, I'm you know, a sexy, cool startup. I'm thinking about using your software. I wanted to get some, uh, some feedback from you, uh, you know, before I do pull the trigger. And I was like, how many, how many surveys do I need to have to get a reasonable, reasonable level of insight on, a, on an idea or a, an opportunity? And he said, 400. 400 is kind of the sweet spot. He said, the margin of error between 400 and 1,000 is not that much. Right? So 400 is, is a reasonable amount. I was like, ah, perfect, I can get 400. It's doable. And so I, I rang up a shopping center who can rename Nameless because we're recorded. I rang up a shopping center and said, uh, hey, this is uh, Devin, uh, I'm ringing for buying me, we're a sexy cool startup. I'd be, uh, I'd be interested in coming down and doing a little bit of customer surveying in your forecourt uh, on Saturday, would that be okay? Absolutely, Devin, no problem, come on down. 1,800 euros a day. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I was in, in work on my lunch break making this call. And so I rang and said, I said, oh, what was your name again? Lorraine? Okay, thanks so much, Lorraine. Listen, I'll get in touch with marketing, see if we have budget, and I'll come back to you. <laughs> no budget, no marketing, uh, not coming back to you. So I rocked up, I, I brought three of my colleagues from Salesforce and uh, a friend. We rocked up to the shopping center on Saturday morning. I put buy me t-shirts on them, and they had iPads and phones with SurveyMonkey on them, uh, and we started surveying. We got about 30 minutes in, 35 minutes in maybe, and we got approached by security, as you do. You can't be here, you absolutely cannot be here, you need to leave immediately. I said, oh, I'm so, I told you, I'm so sorry. Lorraine from head office said it was okay for us to come down this morning just to do a small survey. You know, you can give her a ring if you want, I think I have her number somewhere. I didn't. <laughs> and I was just hoping to God that he didn't want to bother Lorraine from head office on a Saturday morning. And he didn't. Um, and we got the whole day. The whole day in one of the biggest shopping centers in South County Dublin. And we got, I think, 437 <laughs> surveys completed. Now, where the method comes in, and this was something that was really important, and I learned this from Salesforce, was how important lead generation is. 
right? A lot of people forget about it, me included, never thought about this previously, but for this business, I had this concept of lead generation. That's in, I mean, Salesforce, the reason they're a $70 billion business is that they are a lead generating business. That's, that's pretty much all they do, and then they just have a shitload of business that gets spit out the other end as a byproduct of all this lead generation. Um, so at the end of every survey, we asked the users, to, or the not users, ambition, these people, to give us their name, email address, home address, and phone number. Um, and we would pre-register them for a product that didn't yet exist. And we would let them know when it was available in their area. So we ended up with 430, well, not everyone signed up, let's say 410 um, leads, phone numbers, and email addresses, and names of people. And so we, oh, by the time we launched, we had done that a couple of times, and we had, I think, around 1,200 people registered in our database um, for the day we launched. Massively important, yeah. you know, and so I'd say, yeah, business, B2B or B2C, make sure lead generation is part of your validation process because it's kind of like killing, killing two birds with one stone. And um, how did you go about, like, it's difficult, sometimes it's difficult talking to customers, um, how do you, what particularly did you ask them or what were you trying to find out from them? So, one of the, and this is a good, this is a good point, it comes back to the, you know, uh, background piece and you know, do you have to be tech, do you have to have tech background for us? Like I, I spent the majority of my early career as a salesperson. My first job selling fucking shoes and Foot Locker. And then I sold Air Tristy door to door, me and Garrett, while we were doing sound energy. Uh, I mean, selling is, was never a problem. So talking to people was always a natural thing that I kind of built up comfort with. And I would highly recommend that everyone spends a bit of time doing some selling, ideally door to door. I think I nearly got maced once. You know, you get real comfortable with the process. Door to door for Oxfam in the summer. There you go. Yeah, I would like. I mean, we always we always sneer at the people who are like, you know, hey, hey, free, free. You know, on the on graph graphs, you're like, please don't, please don't talk to me. Um, but that's a really hard job to do to engage someone in a discussion and actually create some sort of rapport straight away. That's very hard, um, but it's something you can learn and practice. I would highly recommend everyone goes off and gets a sales job over the summer for a couple of months. Like, just go and do it and, and think about the job as I'm going to get some lessons and, and think about it that way rather than just a, a job. So yeah, these types of skills are important. So when I talked to customers, the, the thing was just asking the questions about uh, what were their current, and the main thing that I wanted to get to, I was pretty sure that the fucking data was already there. Like, the online grocery market is going to double. Like, PwC already did this work, so I was pretty sure it was right. I just wanted to understand the pain points. Like, that wasn't in the reports. Like, why are you not using online as much as you could right now, you know? And so, things like, I can't get delivery slots, you know, two hours waiting around, it's just not workable for me. Uh, they always pick the shitty avocados, and my milk is always about to go out of date in two days. Like, these were the, these were the core things that came out. So, they were the real questions that I was asking. Like, what are the pain points to this? If I am going to do it, what do I have to do really well for it to fucking work? Um, and so they would be the questions that I'd be, I'd be trying to ask is what do you have to do to make it work? And you could get a real sense that they were eager for the... Yeah, I mean, it's, it said in the data, so I went back to Carl and slapped my survey monkey, you know, reports and graphs in front of him. I said, you were wrong about that, you were wrong about that, you were a little bit right about that, you were a little bit right about that, but you were wrong overall, here's some data. And he says, hmm, okay. <laughs> and then we debated for another two hours on the results. Um, he respected that I went off and got the information came back for more. That's the one thing. It's very easy to get criticized and then disappear into the night and never be seen again. Right? It's so easy. Going back for a second beating is what most people don't do. 
So you know, if you sit down and something, and if they're if they're fucking worth their salt, they are going to kick your teeth. And if they don't, don't go back. Find someone new. You want someone who's going to challenge you and challenge your thinking. Um, and Carl became one of the most influential uh, advisors and mentors I've had um, to, to date. Not the last by a long shot. I've met a bunch of others, but um, in those early, those first two years of Buy Me, he would take my calls at midnight. Like I'd ring him fucking stressed about some absolutely minuscule thing going wrong. Um, and he'd sit and talk to me for an hour about it, you know, tiniest of things. And that's so important because I didn't really have a big team around me at the time, and you need soundboards. So yeah, I've gone on a bit of a rant there. I kind of forgot what the question was. A story, I mean, it's a, a trope around startup world that you have to, in the beginning, do things that don't scale. And I think you've probably one of the best examples I've heard of this, when you took the photos of the... <laughs> yeah. Things. Oh, that's a big... Oh, yes, that's a, that's a chapter. Okay, so this kind of feeds into the validation piece, okay? So I wanted, I wanted to do a couple of things. So I've built this new channel, never been done before, same-day grocery delivery, you know, independently run, personal grocery, all this stuff, like it was new. And I wanted to do a couple of things. So I wanted to have a discount retailer, and I wanted to have a branded retailer. Okay, so I wanted to have these two types of retailers because they're very different. You know, when I looked at the, again, report, Innovation Days, one of the pieces that I got was that there's three growth channels in FMCG at the moment. So not only is online gonna double, but there's actually three growth channels and three channels alone that are gonna grow in the foreseeable future for grocery. Discount, no, sorry. Convenience, number three, discount, number two, online, number one. And so I wanted the platform to straddle those three channels, right? I wanted to be online, I wanted to be convenient, and I wanted to make sure I had discount feeding in there somewhere. So I would be on the top three growth areas. So give myself the best fucking chance. And so I wanted, yeah, so I've been so around Carl who had now become a formal mentor. And you should always, like this is the thing, you identify people and you ask them to be your mentor, to be an advisor for the business. You just, you formalize it, right? So at this stage, we had agreed it, threw him a bit of equity, you know, a bit of a deal, some key expectations, and we're all in. And not in paper, like it was all theoretical at this stage. You know, there was a bit of trust built in there as well. And I wasn't incorporated or anything like that. And I, I rang him and I said, look, I saw on LinkedIn that you know the head of marketing for a certain discounter, which shall remain nameless for this purpose. Um, a couple of these. And uh, I'd like to meet her. And he says, yeah, okay, I'll make an introduction. He used to work with her before, like a couple of years ago. So he made the introduction, I got the meeting. So I went into this retailer um, and I showed them the prototype for Buy Me. I showed them the, the app, their store, their logo, and I had about 40% of their products, which we harvested from their website. Okay, and I said, look, I'm going to launch this in February, and I need another 60. I need the other 60% of your products because one of the most important, and I didn't say this sort but one of the most important reasons was that my KPI that was most important to this business is retention. Pretty much any business, actually, any startup, the most important KPI at the very start is the retention. Do they fucking come back? If they don't, you don't have a business. So retention is going to be the primary thing that you're looking for. And I knew that if I only had 40% of products, they wouldn't be able to get a whole basket. So they might try us once, but they'd come back and they wouldn't be able to find the frozen peas. And they'd say, oh, I'm gonna order from Tesco or I'm gonna go down to the shops myself because I can't get what I need. So really important. And I got a really, really polite fuck off. As in, I, I know Carl, so I'm gonna be nice. Sounds great, Devin. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Stay in touch. Where did you go? And all I heard, enthusiastic entrepreneur, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Sounds good, Devin. Keep in touch. 
So I did. I kept doing what I was doing. February 12th came along and we can launched Buy Me Into The Market with our discount retailer and our branded retailer. And we hockey sticked. We hockey sticked because of all of those bloody leads that we had generated. We got 1,800 downloads in the first five weeks. And we ramped up to about four grand a month, five grand a month in sales. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot. Five grand is the average spend of an entire family in groceries per year. I was pretty much the only grocery delivery shopper. So that was a shitload of groceries to be moving around Dublin. So I'm running around like a headless chicken trying to deliver these groceries. And with no technology, no processes, no best practice, no, no nothing, just making an absolute hames of it a lot of time. And, and five weeks in, I get a phone call. First big break. I get a phone call from the retailer, someone different this time, not the person I met because they had gone on maternity leave. And someone asked, it's like, hi Devin, this is John, let's say, uh, from retailer X. Heard, about, heard you were in talking to my colleague before Christmas. Looks like things are going very well for you. You're getting a lot of tension in the press. Want to come in for a chat? I said, absolutely. I remember I was in my living room when I got this phone call. I said, absolutely. He was like, cool, next Monday, yada yada. I like, great, hung up, jumped for joy. Physically jumped for joy. I remember I was in the apartment on my own, like a fool, jumping around the place. And I was like, this is it, this is it. Five weeks in, first retail partner, billion dollar company, here we come. So I put together a deck, remember? And I, do, I took this meeting in between grocery orders. So I had to turn off my slots because I was the only delivery person. Turned off a block of time so I couldn't get any orders in for that time. A day in advance because I didn't want to book it. And I had this free time in between orders to go and take this meeting. And so I best clothes on, you know, and uh, rocked in with this deck. And I sat down um, and I'm a fairly transparent person. And I believe that when you're starting a business, you have to have a natural transparency about you. Holding your cards close to your chest will not get you very far when you're starting a business, right? You have to be open and willing to share, otherwise you won't get anywhere. Because you have to build a lot of trust in your days because you've got nothing else. And so I went in and for about an hour, I got soaked for information. I got asked every question under the sun. And I'm just talking away, talking away. Oh, did you know that X percent of the time a customer comes into your store, they can't find at least one product that they're looking for? Here's your worst performing categories. We just collect this data, by the way, it's just an accident that I have this, but would this be valuable? You need a new store in swords because all your all your all your business is going to Santry at the moment. Here's a heat map with pins where all your customers live. Would this be valuable? By the way, I just collect this by accident. But would, would this be good? You know, because we are a data company. That's we don't own vans. We're not a delivery company. Delivery is just a, 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 like a happenstance of the data and the cash flow management and the transactions that we're creating. So at the end of an hour, hour fifteen, I, they say, "Well, Devin, thanks very much for sharing that. Really appreciate it." We, truth be told, we didn't even think of the data. But you know, actually, the reason we invited you in is that our legal team is really upset that you've been using our logo without our permission. So you're gonna get a cease and desist letter in the morning. Thanks for coming in. I did not expect that. I thought I was in a commercial discussion, not a litigious one. And that was a big surprise. I know this is a roundabout point to get to where you were talking about, but this is a bit of context, right? <laughs> As to why I ended up doing something that was a little bit hacky, maybe you could say. So I said what every good founder should say in this scenario. I said, I see this is for what? And they said, brand infringement. And I said, brand infringement, that's a very strong word. I said, I don't see any brand infringement. I said, you know, they said, that's our logo. I said, that's not your logo. Your logo is blue and yellow and white. That's red and white. They're buy me colors. No, Devin, it's, uh, it's black and white brand infringement. I said, I, I think it's gray. <laughs> it's a real gray area. And um, so I said, look, look, 
there's obviously value here. You can keep this data. It's a gift. Um, plenty more where that came from. Um, I said, send me on the legal letter, and I'll have my legal team have a look at it. And I'll get back to you. Did not have a legal team. <laughs> Man in a van. That was it. Me and Carl and my co-founder Art, who was in Armenia, 5,000 kilometers away. That was it. That was the team. So I have, a, I have an intro to a legal firm by the time I got back to the car. Rang Carl the minute I walked out. So Carl, can you introduce me to a good law firm? <laughs> the meeting didn't go well. <laughs> um, and I very quickly realized that, okay, okay, I have some options. One, we should try and get to a commercial discussion as soon as possible. I took them off the app for about six weeks. Okay, didn't want to piss anyone off. We did not set out to disrupt. Right, we set out to try and solve the problem, and we wanted it. We wanted a partner. Like that was in all honesty our goal. After about six weeks, there's no decision makers locally. They're, they've sent me three legal letters now, and you have to respond to every legal letter. That's 400 and 500 euro pop, and probably about two grand in the whole of legal fees now. Two to three grand maybe, and um, and that's like two or three percent of my total capital. I raised 100 grand in 2015 to start this business. Friends and family, again. Never know when you're going to have to go back. Uh, Enterprise Ireland and one angel investor. And now I spent three grand of their money answering three or four letters. So at that stage, I realized, okay, this is not going to work. I can't keep spending this money because they can expend me for sure. And I decided that uh, I was going to solve the problem for today and not worry about the problem for tomorrow. And this is really important when you're a startup. Like you can get so lost in the long-term goal. And so what I realized was, What's the problem for today? The problem today is that I don't have 60%. I don't, I don't have the other 60% of products. My retention is going, to be, is going to be shit, and I'll never get investment because of it. So I went into one of their stores in East Wall, and I bought 3,500 products. I bought one of everything off the shelf. It cost me six grand. They're about six and a half. And I brought, this was done over three weeks. It wasn't done like, it was in like 50 million trolleys. It was we, me and three friends went in systematically every day. Lazy man's load. Yeah, for sure. And uh, brought it back to our apartment, filled the bathtub with ice and water, put all the fresh fish and the fresh chicken, the fresh meats into the bath. And um, we bought a doggy tent and we cut the sides out of the dog house uh, and we installed some LED lights. And I borrowed a DSLR camera off my only angel investor at that time. Uh, and we photographed every single product and digitized it and cataloged it. And then we photoshopped every brand off. Because my reading of the legal letter was that they were claiming that we were infringing on their brands. 90% of their shelf brands are theirs as well. And that was the problem. So I said, okay, let's see how important your brand is. Because one of the issues I had is that when someone sends you a legal letter, that's there forever, more or less. And when you raise capital, you go through something called legal disclosure. Okay, and this is the thing that investors do. Like they'll say yes to an investment, then their lawyers will go, "Cool, yeah, yeah." So, uh, yeah, James is in. We just got to go through this legal disclosure letter. Can you just send us everything that you've ever gotten legally, and so that we make sure there's no skeletons or bodies buried anywhere? So I was afraid an investor would read this and see, "Oh, you're using their brand. This isn't really your growth. They're not really your customers, and the whole deal would fall apart." So that's what I worried about. So I said, "Right, let's get their whole brand out of this. Let's 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 ask a very different question. How important is the brand really?" And so we put them back on the app with a load of Photoshop products, and we just called them German Discounter. We saw a 480% increase in revenue that day, the day we turned them back on after six weeks to turn them off. And then I, I leaned in, and I think you should always lean into your strategies. And you know, my feeling was that if they're going to treat me like a disruptor, I want to be their friend. 
I want to be their ally, and someday I think they'll realize that. But if they're going to treat me like a disruptor now, then I'm going to own that role. And so I rented billboards outside their stores, like two, I think, with big fingers pointing in, saying, buy me, order now. We even deliver from these guys. <laughs> I, yeah, we found it hilarious. They didn't. <laughs> didn't find it funny at all. Um, and they had our billboards taken down. But not before I got a nice picture and I did a few press releases, like big foreign corporate tries to squash Irish startup in its own backyard. Um, and I just, just went hell for leather, tweeted the shit out of them. They lodged a complaint with the Advertising Authority Ireland against us. That cost me another 10 grand. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it got messy and it got noisy. But uh, yeah, we solved the problem. And that was, you know, ultimately the, the, right, the right move to do. I lost, you know, investors, lost a founder. We had three founders at the stage, and one left because he didn't agree with the strategy. It's an interesting strategy. Yeah, sure. for sure. I'm sure when you're raising that underground, you didn't see yourself, you know, three months down the line with the salmon in your, in your <laughs> back. And, no, no. I thought it was going to be going a lot smoother, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I look back now, and actually, that whole experience became probably our most valuable fundraising tool, that story, because it made it fucking real. And when you're trying to raise capital for your business, how you tell the story of your business will be what makes it or breaks it. Because investors do not back businesses, they back how it makes them feel. And so you need to tell a very human story to whatever business, and groceries is by far the most sexiest of businesses, but if you can craft a good story and you remember all the little moments and then put those into something that's compelling and actually helps people connect, it'll make all the difference in your fundraising. Reminds me of you know, the Airbnb guys when they were 20 grand in debt, making the Obama O's and Captain Kane cereal yes. to pay off their debt. That sure. got them into Y Combinator. In the yeah, end. and they just and they started going out and photographing the apartments themselves. They were yeah. like, these, these guys don't have a clue. They went out with a real professional camera and started photographing the apartments themselves. And the photographs and the quality of the content started you know, getting people to actually convert. Like all these little tiny things, like little hacky moves that, that yeah. the businesses have to do. And it comes from understanding your core KPI. What's the most important KPI for you today? Just focus on solving that in whatever way you can. And if you have to step on toes to do it, if you have to piss people off to do it, just fucking do it. Because you've nothing to lose. And that's the honest truth of it. Like, we had nothing to lose. Okay, 100 grand. I promised my investors I was going to put it to work. And put, put it into legal response letters was not good work. So get to work and do something else. And, and, and yeah, make it interesting. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Citizens of the Internet podcast. We'll be back next week with another fresh episode. Be sure to check it out.